Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of their two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two took Moabite wives. The names of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Machlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband's husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more so if anything but death parts me from you. And then Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her. She said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Benjamin Franklin was an ambassador to France for a number of years, 
And he occasionally attended what was called the Infidels Club. There's a particularly well-known story. This group liked to essentially assemble and discuss the great literary works. And on one occasion, when Franklin was there, he read to this particular group the short story of Ruth. But he changed the names of all the characters and removed all the trappings of the Bible. When he had finished, the listeners were unanimous in their praise of this story, saying it was one of the most beautiful short stories they had ever heard. And they demanded of Franklin that he tell them where he got it. Although not a Christian, Franklin loved telling them it was from the Bible. Ruth has been called one of the most beautiful short stories ever written, but it is more than a short story. It is history. Its four chapters represent a significant period in the history of God's redemption of his people. And it comes to us today, as I mentioned before, as pure gospel. It comes to remind us where God's presence remains. And it reminds us this morning to remain in the city of God and forsake the city of man. The first thing we see in the text is essential to our understanding and a good interpretation. In verse 1, we read, In the days when the judges ruled, scholars often debate the origin of the book of Ruth. Some believe it to have been initially a part of the book of Judges. But that doesn't really concern us this morning because for the past 2,000, give or take 100 years, it's been its own separate entity. And it is imperative that we understand this context of the book of Judges. And also Old Testament literature in general. The Old Testament testifies to us this morning the working out of the prophetic word in the life of the nation of Israel, the people of God. Bible history is not typical history. Today we read a biography or a history, we want a kind of blow-by-blow account. We expect a certain order of things. The book of Ruth and much of the Old Testament history gives us snapshots, things that are important to teach us something theologically or to teach us something about God, and particularly in Ruth, the history of redemption at this vital period. With Ruth being set in the time of Judges, we need to know the book of Judges' central themes and that particular time in history of God's redemption of his people. The period of the book of Judges is the beginning of a radical descent into disobedience. The people would not submit to Torah, the teaching, the law of God, However, at the end of Joshua, prior to setting up the book of Judges, we have an important thing to notice. It sets the context for us of the whole flow of redemptive history from Joshua through Ruth. We see that in Joshua 24, right before Judges 1, a beautiful covenant renewal ceremony at Shechem. Many of you may know this story. It's where Joshua uttered these famous words. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river 
or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This covenant renewal at Shechem, the end of Joshua, gives way to this downward spiral of sin that we see enacted over and over again in the book of Judges. The cycle repeats itself. It always begins with a move towards sin, grievous sin, leading to God's judgment, followed by repentance, and then God's bringing in a warrior, someone to defeat Israel and his enemies and to save the people. Then rents, wash, and repeat. It's the same story over and over again, only the names are changed. The summary phrase heard throughout the book of Judges, even its concluding verse is, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's not so different from our world today. I would say that's a pretty apt statement that we live in a world where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. This is the time of the book of Judges. This is the time of the setting of Ruth. The original audience would have understand the author's cue right from the beginning. We must begin by also remembering that while Ruth is written for our benefit, we are not the original audience. So today, as we look through the text of Ruth, I'm going to be constantly referring back to how the original audience would have seen and interpreted this as best as we can from our modern vantage point. And then I want to try to apply it to our modern setting. Look with me now at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. There are a few things to notice here. First of all, it's a time of crisis. Famine occurred. We're not told exactly why the famine occurred. In the context of the book of Judges, it's easy to imagine this as some divine punishment and retribution. It may have been God's hand upon the nation, driving them out. But we're not told the exact details. All we know is that in the time of the judges, a famine occurred and an Israelite family went to Moab. Notice in verse 2 we have some new information, but essentially we're told the same thing again. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem of Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. The Bible rarely repeats itself. But when it does, we need to take note, and the original audience would have taken note. This family headed for Moab sets an ominous tone for the entire first chapter, at least until the return. This family did not turn to God for mercy in a time of famine. They left the land that God had given them, the land of promise, traveled east out of Judah, beyond the land of promise, past the Dead Sea, into the land of Moab. Now, why is Moab such a strange place for an Israelite family to go? If we look back to Deuteronomy 23, we find that this was the place. These were the people that had refused the ancestors of Israel bread and water. 
they had lacked hospitality towards the Israelites. And what's more, they hired in Deuteronomy 23, the prophet Balaam to curse the people of Israel. The people of Moab were the enemies of Israel and therefore the enemies of God. They worshipped other gods, they had strange customs, and they had been at war and had killed many an Israelite. The original audience would have heard this repeated reference to Moab throughout the book of Ruth, not only in its first chapter, and would have abhorred the thought of an Israelite family leaving the promised land for Moab. They were exchanging the city of God for the city of man. The author of Ruth is about to use this family as an example of what not to do. He was telling the original audience, don't leave the land of promise. There is no blessing outside of the land that God has given. I'm a, shouldn't admit this, but I'm a big fan of the Jurassic Park movies. And a particular character there, uh, the mathematician Dr. Ian Malcolm is a favorite. He's played by the actor Jeff Goldblum. He often has memorable, funny quips in the film and uh, that are quite quotable. In my own sort of twisted imagination, I can imagine Dr. Malcolm sitting at the gates of Bethlehem, commenting on this situation, much like he commented in the 1997 Lost World film about dinosaurs being taken off an island and moved into San Diego. This time, Dr. Malcolm said, taking dinosaurs off this island is the worst idea in the long and sad history of bad ideas. And I'm going to be there when you learn that. The end of chapter one, I can imagine him and his reaction seeing this family, now just two women, returning to the land of promise. You see, a T-Rex doesn't belong in San Diego. And the people of God should not sojourn in the city of man. Let's consider a couple of names that we encounter at this point in our text. The family was from Bethlehem, which is ironic on at least two points. Bethlehem in Hebrew actually means house of bread. They're leaving the house of bread in the promised land to go to Moab to the place where they had been refused bread and water. The logic is astounding. The irony is there. Also, from our vantage point from the New Testament, consider that Bethlehem is the place where Christ comes, the bread of life, the one who declared, I am the bread of life, and if anyone eats of this bread, he will never be hungry again. The family left God's place of presence and blessing. Look at the picture of this caravan leaving the city of God, all following their head, whose name was Elimelech. God is king, or is my king. They're traveling away from God, away from Yahweh. What should Elimelech have done? What would we have done in those circumstances? Are we not tempted to be like them? Are we not tempted to leave our Christ and our God and His kingdom on a weekly basis? The message so far, at least at the beginning of the book of Ruth, is don't do it. Just as then, so now there is a place where God promises His special blessing to us. 
It is no longer a physical location. It is the place where Paul tells us in Ephesians 3 that the glory of God dwells. It used to dwell in the temple and the tabernacle in Israel. It now dwells in the church, His collected body of people. Please understand me this morning. We grow, yes, through private Bible study, through reading, quiet time, all the rest. Prayer, absolutely essential. But our personal devotion times are not the place where the gates of hell have not been promised to reign against them. It is in the church where the gates of hell will not reign. The church, as Pastor Jeremy reminded us last week in his sermon, is the body of Christ. Christ is the head and we are the members. We can't just cut off a hand or cut ourselves off from the head Christ and expect to function as a people, corporately or individually. The other metaphor, the other image that we have in the New Testament is Christ and His bride, the church as the bride of Christ. Do we sometimes praise God with things like Elimelech's name, God is my King? And then care little for his church or his bride? His bride that the word declares is without spot or blemish? Is it our joy this morning to gather with the saints? To be in union with Christ and with one another this morning? Or do we prefer the songs and the fields and sporting events of Moab? Do we anticipate God speaking to us when we come to church? Do we expect to hear from God? Is this the place where we ordinarily meet God? If I were meeting someone famous, famous musician, an actor, politician perhaps, not so sure on that, um, I would look forward to it with great anticipation. I might even be a bit nervous, but I would certainly prepare and be looking forward to it. This morning, through the Spirit of God, we can hear and are hearing from Christ Himself in the worship and the praise of the church and the saints in the preaching of the Word. Do we love the church that Christ gave Himself up for? Or are we still enslaved to the city of man and to Moab? Why? And I put myself in this. Why do we so often expect God's mercy and grace when we so often take for granted His means of communicating that grace to us? How can some of us think so little of word and sacrament ministry of the church when that is the place where God offers Himself to us. Let the hymn writer remind us this morning, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is His new creation by water and the Word. From heaven He came and sought her to be His holy bride. With His own blood He bought her and for her life, the church, for her life, He died. 
Look around this morning. These are your blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ. This is your family for eternity. Christ's church is an expression of His body, His bride, here in Ann Arbor. And we join together with churches that preach and proclaim the gospel around the world every morning. This is where God has promised His blessing to us, His blessings through baptism, through table fellowship in the Lord's Supper, through fellowship together, through reading and preaching the Word. These simple things that God promises bring life, forgiveness, and union with Christ and one another. Last week we had a household baptism that almost brought me to tears. That baptism marked out a family as being in covenant with the living God and His church. Because of a living faith in the promises of God offered in baptism through a living faith, there is no longer any condemnation. What a joy! We as the church have the ability and the opportunity and even the obligation to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. In the body of Christ, we're called to do this. There are no solo Christians that are healthy in the Bible or our modern world. We live in a day when so many Christians don't care to set aside one day in seven for worship. Virtual church is not the same as assembling together. I understand that sometimes providentially we are hindered. But when we can, we need to join with the saints in worship on our day of rest. But Moab is calling and many are heeding that call. This may hit a little too close to home for me. But some of us do church as long as nothing more important comes up. After all, we might miss a practice, a rehearsal, a fantastic catch in a game, or some other good thing. But what is that compared to hearing from the living God? I think it's safe to say that As I look through the history of the church, we have a fairly low view of the church in our culture today. I think we would do well to remember what has been said by those of the past about the church. This sentiment was first said by a man named Cyprian. He said, you cannot have God as your father without the church as your mother. That sounds rather Roman Catholic, except when he said that there was no Roman Catholic Church, there was just the Church. And that sentiment not only has been echoed by the reformers and theologians and pastors that we would trust, but it's biblical. Our own Westminster Confession says this in chapter 25, section 2. The visible church consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. 
There are no, I promise you, there were no secret Roman Catholics in the Westminster Assembly. This is a very Protestant, a very biblical view. The bride of Jesus Christ, his church, the place where his glory dwells, is where the sacraments are properly administered. The words preached. Notice the word ordinarily in our confession. Ordinarily means how it's typically done. Yes, God works and can work. Praise the Lord in many ways outside of the context of the local church. But it is primarily through word and sacrament ministry that he builds his kingdom. And we need to be committed to that kingdom this morning. The great commission of Matthew 28 is a church commission, not an individual discipling mandate. As we go, we are to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching those that we preach to all that Jesus has commanded. This primarily happens today in the church. But it's not just a command and it's not just go and do. It's also a sweet communion with one another and with Christ. Again, I refer to the hymn, yet she that is the church on earth hath union with God, the three in one and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. That is happening in worship this morning here. Let us see with spiritual eyes today that we are worshiping with the saints, past and present. Those who have gone before us in the faith are worshiping around the throne of God this morning. Worthy is the Lamb, they would say, who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That's church. We join every Lord's Day with that chorus with those in the heavenly realms. How can we stay in the city of man and desire its fruits? It's easy. You see, we're all sinners and we're all enticed by Moab and the city of man. And we all need the gospel this morning. None of us loves the church or Christ as we ought. So it is to the mercy of God that we must run and we must turn, expecting Him to continue to sanctify us by His gospel grace and to complete the work that He has promised to do. Now look with me again at verse 1. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. What is the meaning of this sojourning? Gur in Hebrew. While it could mean that they were planning a lengthy stay, it typically indicates, the scholars tell us, of a temporary stay. Elimelech's intent merely to sojourn in Moab rather than identify with the people, the Moabites, and move there permanently was not how the story turned out. In verse 2, we read again that they went into the country of Moab and remained there. In verse 2, we see that two sons of Elimelech and Naomi took wives from the Moabites. Again, if you're an Israelite, if you're the original audience of this, you will be abhorred by that. The nation of Israel was called to be separate 
not on the basis of race, but on the basis of faith and the worship of Yahweh. The problem with the Moabites was not their ethnicity. The problem with the Moabites is that they worshipped other gods, and they were not, as the people of Israel, to join with them. Israel was to be a holy nation that was set apart. And one of the primary purposes was to be a light to the Gentiles. How could they be a light if they were mixing light and darkness? How severe is this prohibition against intermarrying and marrying outside of the faith in Israel? In the time after the exile in Babylon... When the people were returning from Babylon back to Israel, to Jerusalem, there were two individuals in particular that were raised up by God, Nehemiah and Ezra. Nehemiah and Ezra were sent to rebuild the walls, respectively, and also reform the worshiping life of the people. And we get a sense for the purification that was needed of the people. And high on that list is marriage. I'll read to you now from Nehemiah 13, beginning in verse 23. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? This is what that brief sojourn brought. That brief sojourn in Moab. A breaking of God's covenant and the covenant of marriage. And by quick application here in the New Testament, we have the same command. Paul tells us to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. The image we have of marriage in Ephesians chapter 5 is Christ and the church, the husband and the wife. Now look with me back to the text. Notice in verse 4, they lived there about 10 years. 10 years is not a brief sojourn. Most of us, especially in the church, do not begin a foray into sin by planning on remaining there. We don't typically set out for a long stay. We simply go to taste Moab's fruits, to see what we're missing, a fleeting moment of sin. That's not how sin works. Sin doesn't work that way. Like a mouse going for the cheese on a trap, once we nibble the cheese, we're caught. 
The second big point this morning is that there is no such thing as a brief sojourn in the city of man. Once you are through with your sin, your sin is not through with you. There is probably no more prominent issue in the church today than that of pornography. Giving into temptation with a single click, people end up enslaved and on the downward spiral of sin. Many have said, I just want a look. I just want a brief sojourn. See what I'm missing. But with this sin and many others, our brains are rewired and we begin living off dopamine highs, highs that are insatiable and can never be satisfied with enough rubbish. Normal God-ordained relationships become difficult, if not impossible, and only the perverse and wicked seem to momentarily satisfy. So why am I talking about this this morning? Because this is one of the biggest issues in our church today, the Church Universal. Here are just a few statistics, and I'll keep it G-rated few statistics of how this affects the church. 70% of Christian youth pastors report having at least one teen come to them for help dealing with this sin. 68% of church-going men and over 50% of pastors surveyed regularly view this kind of material. 59% of pastors said that married men seek their help for this sin. 33% of women, it's not just a man problem, 33% of women aged 25 and under search for this stuff at least once per month. 57% of pastors survey say that this addiction is the most damaging issue in their congregation. I'm not here to demonize anyone struggling with this sin or with any others. We all have our unique blend of sinfulness. We are all fallen creatures. And by the end of this sermon, I hope that you see that no matter how sinful you feel, how beyond hope you might feel this morning, there is hope for you and for me in the gospel. We are, as one of my professors said, we are more sinful than we realize, but we are also more loved than we could ever hope or imagine. For some this morning, the blend of sin comes via materialism, consumerism. For others, it's the things we should be doing and we leave out those sins of omission. For others, it might be making good things ultimate things. Living for one's job and one's family, these are good things, but they should never become our reason for existing and our ultimate thing. One's retirement, annual vacation, new houses, all of these things have their place, but they need not be ultimate things. Our sin might involve money, envy, covetousness, pride, gossip, deceit, lies, racism, sexism, bigotry, sexual immorality, hatred, and so on. Pastor Jeremy's preaching through Romans 1. Just read the end of Romans 1 and you get the sense of what those sins are. I know everyone here this morning struggles with sin because we're all human. I doubt any of us ever thought about setting down roots in the city of man. But that's what a brief sojourn oftentimes brings.
you get stuck. And if you think you're the one person that's not going to get stuck, look at the history of humanity, starting with Adam and Eve to the present. That witnesses against any naivete that we might have. God judges sin, and it is not to be played with. What hope is there, and how may we be freed from this sin? be one thing if I brought the indictment against all of us this morning, but didn't tell you the rest of the story of Ruth. It's remarkable. It is only through the gospel that we can be restored, the gospel that speaks a loud and clear message in this book. And it is the gospel remedy that leads to changes in behavior and holiness, but it leads to more than that. It leads to life itself. The third point today is that we need to shub. It's a great Hebrew word that I'm going to say about 20 times that I want everybody to remember it. Just like we have words like cherubim and other such Hebrew words that have come into our vocabulary, I want shub to be one of those words. Shub is the Hebrew word for return. It is found 12 times in the first chapter of Ruth. Modern English grammar and syntax have it translated a number of different ways. So I want to, in a moment, go through this chapter and show you where that word exists. To shub means to return or turn back. And it is usually the word we have in the New Testament, excuse me, the Old Testament for repentance, a turning from sin. A return to the land for an Israelite was a return to faithfulness. The land represented God's salvation of his people, and it was the place where Yahweh dwelled on earth. Ruth and Naomi were called to shub, that is to turn and repent from their sins. So look with me at verse 6. Repentance, to return. I'm going to replace the words in here with the word shub, where it should occur. Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to shub from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and went on her way to Shub, to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, Shub, each of you, to her mother's house. Look with me at verse 10. And they said to her, No, we will Shub with you to your people. But Naomi said, Shub, my daughters, why will you go with me? Verse 12, Shub, my daughters. Look again, then at verse 15. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has Shubed to her people and to her gods. Shub, after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to Shub from following you. Verse 21, to continue making the point, I went away full and the Lord has shubed me back empty. Verse 22, so Naomi shubed and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her who shubed, repented. They turned, they returned to Judah, they shubed back. If you're thinking about a brief sojourn in the city of man, or you're stuck there. Shub. Return. Repent. Gospel repentance, what does it look like? We often think of repentance as simply turning a new leaf, making a U-turn. But shub is not that. 
It's not real gospel repentance. No method of try harder, do better is going to free you this morning from indwelling sin. Repentance is making a U-turn. Not to better behavior, but a U-turn to Christ and crying out, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Rescue me. I want us to consider now briefly, as our time is drawing near an end, how Jesus talks about gospel repentance. And in Luke 15, he says this in a parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, He lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Notice that it is Jesus who comes to get the lost sheep. It's a sheep, not a goat. This is a believer. It is Jesus who comes to the sheep, and He comes for you this morning. All you need to do is cry out to Him, your Good Shepherd. Jesus longs to place us this morning on His shoulders. And all we need to do is shub, return, repent to Christ. No matter how far we have gone into the city of man, to Moab, God will still reach us there. Christ will still reach us if we call on Him. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to Thy cross I cling. The hymn writer gives us this beautiful image of what it is like to come to Christ. With nothing but need and want. That's gospel repentance. Bowing to our Lord and Savior is for those who need salvation and for those of us who are already saved. This kind of repentance we need daily to shub, to return, to run to Christ. Fall has arrived in Michigan. It's without question my favorite time of the year. And it's at this time of the year that I'm always drawn to the smell of cider and donuts and beautiful trees and and the like. But I'm also reminded of Martin Luther. And as history has passed down on October 31st, 1517, Luther tacked his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. Something different to celebrate this year on October 31st, maybe. And so as I often think about Luther this time of the year, I was just reminded of the first of those 95 theses. Remember, this is what angered the Pope so much. These 95 discussion points, what the Catholic Church will call them. It angered the Pope so much that it started the Reformation and split the church in half. And this is what the first thesis Luther put out, having against the Roman Catholic Church of his day. 
He said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent to Shub, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. See, repentance is just not for that one time when you prayed a prayer of salvation and asked Jesus into your heart. It is not one day. It is a lifetime of discipleship and seeking the face of God and repenting because He is the one who comes for you and desires you. And the church is where we're reminded of that every week. Our entire lives of repenting to Christ. As Jeremy, Pastor Jeremy, gets up and is ready to prepare the table, I would call every one of us this morning to repent to the table. Not to turn over a new leaf. Not to focus on trying to behave better. But run to Christ. Allow Him to put you on His shoulders. For it's His shoulders and this table where we find kindness, mercy, grace, and righteousness overflowing to eternal life. For there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen.